God, we come to you, Lord, in need. God, we have so many burdens and struggles and, Lord, things that we are wrestling with on a daily basis. And so we come here into this space, Lord, needing an encounter with you by your word. Lord, would your, would your spirit, Lord, just invade our hearts and give us eyes to see Jesus? God, we, we don't just wanna see Jesus, we wanna really see Jesus so that we might be changed. So God, we cannot do that on our own. We need your help. So use your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, Johnny liked his alcohol. Johnny really liked his alcohol. In fact, every Saturday night, you could find Johnny drinking and drinking and drinking until he couldn't see straight. And yet Johnny was a born-again Christian. He told everybody that he was a born-again Christian. And one Sunday morning, Johnny was uh, sitting in church in the back of church, and the preacher was making a call for repentance, making a, an altar call. And here comes Johnny running down the aisle, his tears going down his face, and he's yelling, fill me, Jesus, fill me up, Jesus. The next Saturday night, Johnny is back to drinking again. And the next morning, though, he's back at church in the last row, and the preacher makes the altar call again. So Johnny, of course, comes down the aisle screaming, Jesus, fill me up. Jesus, fill me, O Lord. And then the next Saturday night, Johnny is drinking again. Then the next Sunday, Johnny's back at church, and like clockwork, Johnny comes down the aisle screaming, fill me, Lord, O fill me, Lord. And as he's doing that, you hear this booming voice from the balcony yell, don't do it, Lord, he's got a leak. A couple of you got that. <laughs> Thanks, Heidi. I share that with you because it raises the question, what does being born again actually mean? What is being born again all about? What, what is the type of impact on our lives that being a born again Christian should have? Is it about coming down an aisle after we sing all 800 verses of just as I am? Is being born again about repeating a prayer or having some type of, of emotional experience? Is born again just a title or some type of, of label for the for real Christians? I'm not just a, a normal Christian, I'm a born again Christian. I remember a few years ago, an issue in Forbes magazine featured article was entitled Born Again Companies, and it was describing businesses that were experiencing new prosperity. In the LA Times a few years ago, there was a printed article titled, The Stealer Who Was Born Again. It was about a player who uh, made a, a great comeback. See, I think there's, there's confusion, not only outside the church, but I think even inside the church about what it means to be born again. I think one of the greatest of all biblical terms has honestly just been hijacked. I think it's been emptied of its meaning. It's been dragged through the mire so that today being born again can mean just about anything, or nothing at all. And that's why I think this passage, this familiar passage is so important that we're gonna look at this conversation that uh, Jesus had with Nicodemus and we're gonna see some non-negotiables about what it means to be born again, but we're also going to get to know Nicodemus. And so just to begin, I want us to see, number one, the profile of Nicodemus, and then secondly, we'll see the problem with Nicodemus and then thirdly, the remedy to Nicodemus's problem. So number one, let's get to know Nicodemus here. Now, before we get into chapter three, what bridges our passage with Nicodemus and the temple cleansing 
is chapter two, verses 23 through 25. It's a very interesting couple of verses there that John provides for us, uh, telling us and almost giving us uh, kind of a warning about the kind of man that Nicodemus was, that Nicodemus had this gap in his life where he's curious about Jesus, he's heard about the signs that Jesus was performing, and yet he's also wrestling with the darkness in his own heart. Jesus knows that and yet still engages with him in conversation. Now, a couple of things to know about Nicodemus. Number one, Nicodemus was religiously earnest. He was religiously earnest. Verse one tells us that he was a Pharisee. Now, this meant that he had a a strict observance to the law. In fact, just by uh, way of an example here, on the Sabbath, what Pharisees would actually do is that they wouldn't carry food that weighed more than a dried fig. They didn't wanna violate the Sabbath rest uh, command. They wouldn't even carry milk uh, that was larger than what they could consume in one gulp. Okay, so Nicodemus was a committed and very religious man. He was disciplined, he was morally upright, and his character was pristine. Yet not only that, Nicodemus had a powerful position, not only as a Pharisee, but this phrase here, being a ruler of the Jews, meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a council that only had 70 men as part of that council, and yet they had jurisdiction over every Jew on the the entire earth. The Sanhedrin was the most powerful religious and political body in all of Judaism. Okay, so this position that Nicodemus had, maybe for, uh, for us in our culture, would be some sort of combination between being a, a Roman Catholic cardinal and a U.S. senator all rolled up into one. Okay, this man had, had spiritual and political and religious authority that really no one else could compete with. Another thing about Nicodemus is that he was exceptionally educated, that Jesus' statement in verse 10 about him being uh, the teacher of Israel has led many to believe that he was the greatest teacher in all of Jerusalem, that he was most likely the ruler over the rabbinical schools, that he was a top in his class. And even in this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, Jesus assumes that Nicodemus is tracking with what Jesus is saying. He, he assumes that Nicodemus has a grasp of the Old Testament to be, excuse me, to be able to put the pieces uh, together. And so this was a man who was exceptionally educated. He was respected by all, and yet he has this, this longing to meet with Jesus. And not only to meet with Jesus, but according to verse two, to meet with Jesus by night. I point out all of these descriptions for you this morning because despite having pretty much everything you could ask for during this, this time in this society, it still wasn't enough for Nicodemus. That Nicodemus, the last thing I'll point out, is that he was spiritually searching. This is a man who was successful, educated, respected, religious, and yet something dragged him out of bed at night in order to have this conversation with Jesus. Now that little phrase there, by night, this might just be a historical detail that John provides for us just to paint a better picture of this conversation that Jesus has with them, or it could mean something much more, that this could actually be a description, maybe a metaphor, a metaphor for Nicodemus's spiritual condition during this time. We know that John loves his metaphors. He uses them all throughout his writings. 
And one of his favorite metaphors is darkness and light. And so what I think John is doing, us, doing for us here as he's describing Nicodemus and what kind of person that he is, he's not just religious, he's not just respected, he's not just powerful, but his spiritual condition was empty. At this word night that's, that's used throughout John's gospel refers to this moral or spiritual darkness or, or a type of lostness. Look at chapter nine, verse four, you'll see a great example of that. That Nicodemus was clean on the outside and yet hollow on the inside. That he comes to Jesus during the physical darkness of night and yet that doesn't compare to the type of darkness that he was wrestling with within his own heart. He was lost, he was searching for answers and he comes to Jesus by night. One of this morning, if you've ever been there before in your own personal life. Maybe you've gone through a season where maybe on the outside you were successful, on the outside you were respected, you were you know, religious, you had it all together, yet inwardly you were wrestling with what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? What, what is life really all about? Several years ago in the New York Times, there was a, an article featuring Madonna this was several years ago, but Madonna was talking about reinventing herself. And she talked about getting married and having children and this quest that she went on searching for a deity. She was searching uh, for God and she immersed herself in Kabbalah, which was a, a, it's a kind of mixture of Judaism and mysticism. But she admits that she was searching for something. In fact, Larry King asked her the question, why in the world are you doing this? And Madonna said this, she said, I was looking for something, that I had begun practicing yoga and was looking for the answers to life. Why am I here? What am I doing here? What is my purpose? How do I fit into the big picture? She says, I, I know there's more to life than making lots of money and being successful and even getting married and having a family, but I haven't found what life is all about. Look, she's not alone. Perhaps you're here today asking those same kinds of questions. Maybe you're here at church on a Sunday wrestling with those kinds of issues. Maybe you're here and you're a successful business person. Maybe you have everything, all kinds of possessions and financial security, and yet you're here on a Sunday morning, but you haven't settled the question of what is the true purpose in life? Maybe you're here wondering, I'm a mom, I've got a beautiful family, beautiful kids, and yet I haven't settled the question why am I on this earth? Maybe you're a student, go to class every day, you're surrounded by friends, and yet what keeps you up at night is the haunting question of what is life all about? I wanna encourage you this morning, if you're asking those questions, you and Madonna are not alone. I think Nicodemus was asking those kinds of questions. He was wrestling with those kinds of issues that dragged him out of bed at night to pursue a son of a carpenter. That Nicodemus, there was something within him that wasn't settled. There was something in his spirit that he couldn't quite piece it all together. That perhaps moments leading up to this conversation, maybe Nicodemus came to the realization that for his entire life, he worked at climbing the religious and political ladder, got to the top only to find out that this ladder was leaning up against the wrong wall, that he was clearly searching for something. 
And he has a commendable response to this search. He goes and he finds Jesus. Well, this leads us to the problem that Nicodemus has that Jesus will point out for us. See, he's searching for something because he has a spiritual problem within his own heart. I believe, though, that as Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he really actually has sincere motives. I think we can believe that. He's not like the other religious leaders during this time who are trying to trap Jesus. We know Nicodemus in chapter seven of John that he actually um, speaks up for Jesus. He openly admonishes his fellow council members to fairness. Even in chapter 19, uh, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph, who was another undercover disciple, were responsible for burying Jesus' body, which was only reserved for the disciples of a rabbi. And so eventually, Nicodemus comes around to maybe believing in Jesus, and yet he's not there right now. He approaches Jesus by nights to keep maybe his visit a secret and says to him in verse two, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, this is one of only four lines that Nicodemus says during this entire conversation. In fact, this is the only statement that he makes. The other three are all questions. And yet we can learn a lot about Nicodemus. He says in verse two, Nicodemus claims, he claims to see something about Jesus. If you notice that, he says, we know that you're a teacher from God. We, we see the signs that you perform. We, we see the authority that you have. But then Jesus responds in verse three very clearly and very directly, says to Nicodemus, essentially, you might see that I'm a good teacher, but you aren't seeing deep enough. You aren't seeing clear enough. You might see that I'm a good teacher, but you aren't recognizing my true identity as the Messiah, as the promised King, because you're not born again. He says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has a sight problem. The spiritual diagnosis that Jesus gives to him is that he's spiritually blind because he has not been born again. Now, I want you to feel this scene for a moment. This, this would have been startling for Nicodemus to hear from a man who was not trained in, in theology, did not go to rabbinical school, the son of a carpenter, and yet Jesus stares at the most powerful religious leader in all of Israel and says, you do not see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus probably has never received this kind of, of pushback ever, in particular with a religious topic. And in particular, this idea of not seeing the kingdom of God would have been so foreign for a Pharisee. See, Pharisees believe that, that all Jews would see and enter into the kingdom of God on the last day through the resurrection. In fact, if you were a Jew, you were born inheriting the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus is not using the kingdom of God, talking about only a future reality, but Jesus is also talking about the kingdom of God of, of, a, of an inward reality that takes place within someone's soul, it takes place when you are spiritually regenerated by the spirit of God and your sins are forgiven and you're following the king of that kingdom. That's something that can happen in the present. And yet the gravity of this moment, the the directness 
of Jesus. He's basically saying, look, Nicodemus, I know that you can quote all kinds of verses from the Old Testament about the kingdom of God. I know you can write a dissertation about the kingdom of God, but you are not seeing clear enough. He doesn't even answer the remark in verse two. He just goes right to the hearts. We can see in verse four that Nicodemus truly is not seeing clearly enough. Nicodemus is confused, I think, on two levels. I think, number one, he gets stuck on the physical rebirth in verse four. He says, how can a man uh, be born when he is old? And that he's not only stuck on the physical rebirth, but I also think that he's stuck on the religious rebirth. See, a Jew at this time believed that you could be reborn, you could be born again in six different ways. Now, the first two, Nicodemus doesn't qualify, but the other four, he nailed. The first two, uh, the Jews believed you could be born again if you were a Gentile and you converted to Judaism, you're born again. Secondly, if you were crowned as king, you were born again. So those two don't apply to Nicodemus, but the other four truly did. They believed that as a Jewish boy at the age of 13, you are now eligible to obey the commandments of God so you could be born again. That's a check for Nicodemus. Another way you could be born again is by becoming married. That at the ceremony, you were born again. Another check for Nicodemus. Another way is that when you were ordained as a rabbi or a Pharisee, you were born again. Another check for Nicodemus. And then lastly, the sixth way is that when you were uh, the ruler of a rabbinical school, which many believe that Nicodemus was during this time as the teacher of Israel, another check for Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is, is not unfamiliar with this terminology of being born again. He's just on a different level than where Jesus is. He's stuck on the physical. He's stuck on the religious definition of born again for the Jews. And so this question in verse four is, is Nicodemus essentially saying to Jesus, hey, I, I think I've used up all of my options here. Like I, I've done all of the religious hoops to jump through. I've done all that you can do in order to be accepted before God. Jesus, surely you're not saying that I need to go back into my mother's womb, be born again and go through this process all over again. See, don't miss what Nicodemus is saying here. He's basically saying, Jesus, did I not do enough for God to accept me? Do I need to go back and do this all over again? Are there, are there spiritual requirements that I've missed in order for God to accept me into his kingdom? See, Nicodemus, he cannot see properly. In fact, I think his failure to see Jesus standing right in front of him is, is due to a spiritual blindness. This is consistent with what we see throughout scripture. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about this spiritual blindness. He's, uh, Paul says that in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, Nicodemus is seeing Jesus, but he's not really seeing Jesus. I just wanna pause here for a moment because as I stand here before you and speak to a group of people that I love, a group of people that, uh, fairly religious and spiritual. I just wondered, does this passage appropriately scare you as much as it scares me? 
I mean, does this, does this give you a, a healthy pause as we're, as we're kind of traveling through this conversation and, and we're looking at a man who is about as spiritual and religious as it gets, and yet he was spiritually blind. And this, this hit me right between uh, the, the eyes as I was studying this week. It's, it's possible, in fact, it's very possible to be on the outside pristine doing everything that you need to do religiously, and yet inwardly there is a darkness and a blindness and a lostness that can keep you from truly seeing who Jesus actually is. See, there's a danger in becoming religious and becoming spiritual that you can actually tip over into this side of believing that there are things that you need to do in order for God to accept you and in order for God to love you. See, I think this is the problem that Nicodemus was, was having all throughout his life. He was trying to, to climb this moral ladder because he believed that if he could do enough, if he could accomplish enough things spiritually, then God would accept him. He found himself in this, this checklist mentality. He thought there were spiritual requirements in order to be born again. It was something that he could earn before God. Like I, I truly believe that in, in coming to faith in Christ, there are usually two different barriers. That one, some people believe that they're too far gone, they're too bad, they're too sinful, that surely they're outside of God's grace. Or secondly, they believe that they're too good. They believe they're too moral, they're too spiritual, that they don't need God's grace so they don't come to faith in Jesus. Like I think Nicodemus is, representing that one side where he thought he was too religious. He thought he was too spiritual to need God's grace. And yet I believe in this moment, he's coming to grips with the fact that his spiritual resume is not enough. That Jesus is standing before him and he is trying to explain to Nicodemus, this being born again is not something that you can earn this is not something that you do on your own. This is a work of the Spirit of God within you. And look, that is, that is a marvelous moment to have when you come to the reality that you can't do enough for God to accept you. You need something or someone else. But that leads us to uh, the remedy that Jesus points out for us and to Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus's problem, this spiritual blindness, this is a problem that all of us have before coming to faith in Jesus. And yet Jesus explains for us what the rebirth is all about, these non-negotiables of being born again. Look with me at verse five for a moment. Jesus answered, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, it's, it's interesting because Jesus uses that verse five there to clarify what he has already said. Like he, he notices that Nicodemus is not tracking with him, that they're, they're, they're disconnected. And so he, he talks about this being born of water and spirit in order to clear the fog. And yet, if you're like me wondering, what does this even mean? How, how can this make sense? Well, there's a clue uh, specifically in verse 10 that sheds light on what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says in verse 10, he says, 
aren't you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? See, that's a clue for us. See, that tells us that Nicodemus being the teacher of Israel meant that he had a type of Old Testament understanding where he was to follow what Jesus was talking about. And so in verse five, when Jesus talks about the water and the spirit, Jesus is assuming that Nicodemus is tracking with him. And the reason for that is because the water and the spirit and the rebirth, the regeneration, actually shows up in the Old Testament. Now, where does water, spirit, and regeneration show up in the Old Testament? Well, there are a couple different places. One in particular is Ezekiel chapter 36. I think this is what Jesus was referencing here because in Ezekiel chapter 36, God mentions sprinkling clean water, giving a new heart and a new spirit upon his people. Talks about that in the spirit of being reborn. I think this is what he was referencing and he expected Nicodemus to be following him. He expected Nicodemus to know that the Old Testament predicted Jesus's ministry, that he would inaugurate the new covenant where God would give his people a new heart to be born again. I think this is what Jesus means by being born of water and spirit. This rebirth, this metaphorical expression, this analogy of washing with clean water is what Jesus is driving at. In other words, the the Spirit of God throughout the Old Testament is often used with creating something new. It's often used with this inner renewal and water is often used to communicate cleansing. And so what Jesus is talking about here is what we would call regeneration. You know, regeneration is the objective work of God through the Holy Spirit by which the Holy Spirit invades a person's heart someone who has been dead in their sins and causes them to be born again to God. Regeneration is all about having a new heart. It's all about the spirit of God taking a heart of stone, a heart of stone that's unresponsive to the things of God, a heart of stone that was dead to the things of God and causing it to be made alive so that it's now a heart of flesh to be responsive to the things of God of God. And what Jesus is saying here is that is a work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John chapter six, Jesus will be very explicit and say that no man may come to the Father unless he is drawn in by God. This work of regeneration is something that God does within us. I think that's what he means here when he talks about the wind blowing in verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. We, we can't control the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does what he wishes. He regenerates who, whom he wants to. We can't, we can't put parameters and force the Spirit to work, but just like we can see the wind's effect, we can also see the effect of the Spirit when he regenerates a person's life. So God chooses us, he regenerates us, in order for us to repent of our sins and believe the gospel. Like, I think this is what he's saying to Nicodemus. He's saying, look, Nicodemus, you need someone beyond yourself in order to save you. You're not gonna enter the kingdom of God by working for it or by earning it. You need God within you. Now, I know we're reading this encounter here, but if we were physically there, 
watching this conversation take place, I think it's at this moment that you could cut the tension with a knife. I mean, you've got this carpenter, this Jesus guy, looking at the most religious person in all of Israel in the eyes and saying, God will not accept you because of your religious accomplishments. In fact, Nicodemus, you're gonna have to unlearn everything that you've learned about God and learn the discipline of dependency upon God in order to be saved. If you look at verse nine, Nicodemus just kind of waves the the white flag. He says, how can these things be? In other words, Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, you can't be serious. Like everything that I've worked for, my whole life's spiritual accomplishment is, is worthless. It's off the mark. And then Jesus says, if you jump down to verses 13 and 14, makes an unbelievable connection to the Old Testament. He says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the servant, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, don't miss this connection here. What Jesus is referencing here, talking about Moses and the serpent in the wilderness, is that Jesus is connecting the unbelief of the nation of Israel with the unbelief that was happening in the heart of Nicodemus. See, what Jesus is talking about here took place in Numbers 21. And if you're unfamiliar with what happened in that passage, that was uh, the moment in which the people of God where they were kind of going through the wilderness after being freed from from Egypt and from Pharaoh, the people of God actually start complaining. They start complaining about the type of food that God was feeding them. They talked about, let's just go back to Egypt. See, the people of God were expressing unbelief. They They weren't trusting in the goodness of God. And so what God does is he actually sends some snakes and these snakes start to bite some of the people of God and some of them actually die. The people of God, they start crying out for mercy. And so what God does is he tells Moses, he says, look, I need to teach my people what it means to believe and trust in me. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a serpent and I want you to put it on a pole and I want you to lift that pole up and anybody who looks at that serpent and believes the promise that is attached to that symbol will not die, but will surely live. Okay, so Jesus assumes that Nicodemus knows about that passage in Numbers 21, uses that and says in the same way, the son of man talking about himself will be lifted up not on a pole, but will be lifted up on a cross and he will die in the place of sinners so that whoever believes in me will not die, but will have eternal life. This is a a skillful way that Jesus gets to to, to the heart of Nicodemus, trying to stress the necessity of personal belief in Jesus in order to be reborn. Totally avoids that he has to jump through religious hoops in order to be born again. Doesn't tell him you need to go to the synagogue and obey the law. He says, you need to believe in me. Now, in studying this passage, you get to verse 15, And many believe that the conversation ends there and then John provides dialogue for the rest of John chapter three. And looking at this, it's it's frustrating. Honestly, like studying this, you get to verse 15 
and you expect the very next verse to say that Nicodemus believes in Jesus and becomes a disciple. And yet it doesn't say that. You're like, no, no, it needs to say that. Like, this is a perfect, perfect way to get to belief in Jesus. This was, this was amazing, and yet John doesn't include that. Now, from other occurrences throughout John that we know about Nicodemus, maybe he believed in Jesus, but we don't know at this point in John's gospel, and I think that's intentional. See, remember, John is writing this gospel in order for us to see Jesus, behold his glory, and believe in him. And so I think what John wants the reader, wants us to do, is to think to ourselves, man, what did Nicodemus do here? I wonder wonder if Nicodemus believed. Well, we're not told here. And then we think a little bit longer, and we think, hmm, I wonder what I would have done if I were Nicodemus in this instance. I wonder if, if I would have believed in Jesus. See, I think that's what John wants us to conclude. I think that's the driving force of this narrative of placing ourselves in the shoes of Nicodemus and thinking, if I had this conversation with Jesus, would I believe in him and do I believe in him today? Well, we don't know what happened to Nicodemus. And you have to wonder what that conversation was like between Nicodemus and his wife as he got home that night. You have to wonder as he, you know, kind of comes into the house, comes into the living room, his wife is there, and his wife says, wow, Nicodemus, you're out late tonight. Were you studying again? Nicodemus says, no, it wasn't studying. I went and I saw that Galilean man, that, that, that man named Jesus that everyone's been talking about. She says, oh, well, well, how did that go? And he responds, well, I'll tell you one thing, it was not what I expected at all. And she says, oh, well, well, what did he say? And he says, well, apparently, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. I, I think he's actually the king. In fact, what I could piece together is that there's this theme of redemption that goes throughout the whole Old Testament that actually concludes and climaxes with Jesus himself. And she says, oh, well, that's, that's very interesting. And Nicodemus says, yeah. And then, and then Jesus started talking about this snake that's in the, and she said, oh, there was a snake there? And he said, no, 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 that's what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about the snake in Numbers 21. And, and he actually said that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then she says, well, Nicodemus, did you believe? And he says, ah, oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I believed or not. I think I did, but maybe I didn't. And then she responds, well, then you didn't. See, I think towards the end of this conversation that Nicodemus has with Jesus, I think John wants us to get to this point where we're thinking through the lens of what will you do with Jesus? And he brings up this personal issue of your responsibility to place your faith upon Jesus. That Numbers 21, the people of God out in the wilderness, they were not saved by being in the same environment of the pole. That they were not saved by becoming aware of the pole that the serpent was upon. They were not saved because their mom or their dad believed in that pole. No, they were saved because they put all of their hope, all of their significance, all of their belief and their trust in the promise that that symbol represented. That's 
how they were saved. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, when you place your faith and your belief upon Jesus, everything that you're hoping for, that is when you are saved. Look, I think this was a hard conversation for Nicodemus because Nicodemus has the same problem that you and I have. That our problem is that deep down, and we would never say this out loud, but deep down, there's a part of us that, that would really like to contribute to our salvation. Like, can I just play a small role in, in earning my salvation? Like, it, it's kind of like what we do when someone takes us out to dinner and they pay for the meal, like, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pay for the meal. What do we typically say? We say, oh, well, I'll, I'll take care of the tip, right? Like, we, we want some role to play when free things are given to us. And I think the same is true with salvation, that we know that, that Jesus paid it all. That Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. And yet there's a part of us that really wants God to look down upon us, that God loves us because we're so moral, because we do the right thing, because we're committed to church, because we read the Bible, that God puts his joy upon us because I am such a nice guy. So I think deep down, we still wrestle with exactly what Nicodemus was wrestling with here is that there is some role that I can play in this salvation that Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's all about belief, complete belief in the son of man who was lifted up and died on the cross for the sins of the world. Like that's what we're confronted with here. Look, it doesn't matter if you're here today and you're not a Christian or if you're here today and you are a believer. Look, we need that reminder because we dip into this, this sense of God will show favor upon me. God will, will love me more based on my performance with him. And that Colossians 3 says that you are hidden in Christ. You are seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father, that God looks at you, he sees Jesus, and he delights upon you, not because of your performance, but because of Jesus' great performance that he did on your behalf, and nothing will ever change that. And we've got this Nicodemus voice in the back of our minds thinking, man, I, I gotta play some role in earning God's favor and earning God's love. Like that's gonna take you down a dangerous path where your relationship with God might become more performance-based than Christ-based. And so as I close this morning, I just, I just wonder, I've been praying about this all week, I wonder if through the work of the Spirit and the power of the Scriptures that maybe there are some 21st century version Nicodemuses in the room. Maybe you're here and you're successful, you're educated, you're religious, you're respected, but maybe there's been a part of you that's been trusting in yourself in order for God to love you and in order for God to save you. And you're, you're feeling the spirit of God work in your heart and that light bulb going off, wondering, what do I need to do then? And look, I just wanna encourage you today. It's simple, but it's supernatural. If that's you today, you find yourself being Nicodemus, wondering what it is that you need to do, it's to come to Jesus just as you are and to believe upon him, to believe that you're a sinner, to believe that you could not earn salvation, to believe that Jesus came and he died in your place, that Jesus raised back to life, conquering sin, conquering our enemy, conquering death, for all who put their faith upon him will be saved to come to Jesus. Look, if that's you today, you don't need an altar call like Johnny, 
You just need to turn to Jesus and put your faith upon him. If you need help with that, turn to the person next to you after the service and say, hey, I wanna put my faith in Jesus, show me how, or I'll be down here in the front with love to talk to you about what it means to trust in Jesus. Don't walk out of here living a life centered upon your own performance, but rest upon Jesus's finished work. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that Jesus is enough. God, we thank you that there is nothing that we can do to add to the salvation that Jesus purchased on our behalf, that as the scriptures say, that we believe in our heart, that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. God, I pray that you'd protect us from living in a performance-based relationship with you. God, we want our, our motives to be, to be right. We wanna obey you because we've been accepted in Jesus. We don't wanna obey you in order to be accepted before you. So God, I pray for those in this room that are wrestling in that moment, who are thinking to themselves, I am an awful like Nicodemus. God, I pray that you'd save them today based on Jesus' finished work, who is our living hope. In his name I pray, amen.